Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and the president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions of life. Like, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, who best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts towards the author of the answers. Throughout this, our second podcast season, we've been releasing groups of episodes thematically to allow for a deeper exploration of topics that we believe are both timeless and timely. All of our episodes have been previously recorded and edited for length and clarity, but to listen to any of our conversations in full, just visit our website at ttf.org. Now, as we enter the season of Advent and release this final batch of episodes, we're turning to poets, musicians, and creators to help us explore the paradox of a kingdom that is now, but not yet, of an ageless God and baby in a manger, of a light that has dawned amidst a darkness that persists. Our hope is that these conversations might inspire wonder, kindle hope, and sharpen our longing as we say and sing together, O Come Emmanuel. With that, here's today's conversation. For a long time, the great questions have been assumed to focus on the purpose and the content of the good life, which in turn was assumed to be inextricably tied to our understanding of truth, goodness, and beauty. And one of the primary ways for understanding beauty has always been music. Philosopher Peter Kreft noted that Plato, when he writes The Republic, spends one paragraph on economics, 40 pages on music. And one of his contemporaries, Damon of Athens, wrote, let me write the songs of a nation, and I care not who writes its laws. Millennia later, music still has much to teach us, not only about beauty and aesthetics, But as our guest tonight will show, tell, and even sing about knowing and loving God and neighbor and cultivating the habits of and disposition towards praise, grace, and wisdom. And it is hard to imagine a duo more equipped, enthused, or eloquent in the task than our guest this evening, Keith and Kristen Getty. Keith and Kristen occupy a unique space in the world today as the preeminent of modern hymn writers. Uh, They're authors of the most widely sung hymns in the UK, US, Canada, Australia, and many other countries. They have created a catalog of deeply theological hymns that cross genres of the traditional, classical, folk, as well as contemporary composition styles, for which work they were actually recently honored by Queen Elizabeth as an officer of the Order of the British Empire. They are also the authors of the best-selling work, Sing, How Worship Transforms Your Life, Family, and Church, and creators of the Gettys Irish Christmas Show, which has toured annually since 2011, playing to some 50,000 people in venues each year, such as Carnegie Hall and the Kennedy Center, where they will be performing on December 14th. Mark your calendars. Once they are done speaking and singing, responding to the Gettys as part of a moderated conversation will be Dr. Jeff Greenman, 
Jeff is the president, as well as a professor of theology and ethics at Regent College, a board member on the Langham Partnership and Northern Seminary, a member of the Society of Christian Ethics, and the American Academy of Religion. He is the author or editor of 11 books, including two books of direct relevance to our topic tonight, both of which will be on sale at the Regent desk at the end of the evening. A book on the theology of 15 great hymns entitled Unwearied Praises, Exploring Christian Faith Through Classic Hymns, and another on congregational worship entitled A Pedagogy of Praise, How Congregational Worship Shapes Christian Character. After Jeff's response, we'll have a time of moderated conversation between myself, Keith, Kristen, and Jeff, and then we'll open up the floor to audience questions. Keith and Kristen, welcome. Thank you, Cherie, for that kind welcome. It's a privilege for Kristen and I to be here tonight. We're honored to be part of this. I'm a lover of all things in the arts, and, and the arts share much of what all of these talks share as commonalities. And indeed, true, living, vibrant art in a dynamic age always collaborates with art across, across all boundaries. And it's important that all of us are doing that. But, but singing actually is, is, is a little bit different to, to other forms of art. And all of us don't have to paint, although visual things are very important. All of us don't have to act, but indeed the drama and the liturgy of a service has huge importance. All of us don't have to do architecture, although architecture shapes life and community. And all of us don't have to do poetry, although poetry is so important in our expression of what we do. But the Bible commands all of us to sing. Indeed, it is the second most commanded, common command in scripture. And as we were discussing with Cherie earlier, if we take all the related phrases, extol, exalt, praise, and etc., etc., all these different words, um, it, it becomes the most common uh, command slash exhortation in all of scripture. Not only that, it is probably one of the most confused subjects right now in the world we live in. When we consider that Martin Luther, um, with Martin Luther, um, I think it's Steve Nichol that I'm quoting, he says, Luther understood the reformation of the word happened by the teachers explaining the word and that the word was carried out of church by the songs that we sing. And if we look at the Psalms, if, if we look at the church fathers, if we look at the reformers, and, and we look at the, 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 the tradition that has come up through the hymn books and everything that has come since, all of that, all of that would, would, would lean into that. And yet the last 30 years, suddenly everything has changed. And we've got sociological issues, such as the change of music from the 60s onwards. We have got a world which is now, run, run, which is now with an internet. All music is accessible. We have a world that um, no longer has hymn books. We have a world where church music and its two main influences, which are Christian music industry and Christian radio, are largely owned by Wall Street. And so whereas two generations ago, this holy activity which helped create, uh, help form be a key part of our spiritual formation is now in absolute confusion. And we have worship leaders at the front of our churches who often don't know what they're doing in almost any sense of the word. And I, and I, I don't mean to be unkind because I'm not unkind to the worship leaders. I, I think this is actually the role of the pastors because it has been through all of history and we need to take a lead if this is the most common command in all of scripture, it is something that is of crucial importance to each one of us. 
and our homes and our churches and the communities in the world that we will leave behind us someday. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to real quickly um, take, take two little sections. I'm going to talk about why we sing because singing is a form of beauty. It's a, it's a subsection of music, but it's relevant to all of us. And then secondly, we're going to look at how it affects our spiritual formation in kind of concentric circles working outwards. We're going to look at individuals. We're going to look at families, we're going to look at churches, and we're going to look at community. So why do we sing? Well, we're commanded to sing. It is, we've said already, there are, it is the most common command in all of Scripture. It is something that God takes very seriously. Uh, it, it also, the, the, Bible is, the Bible is very, leaves us lots of blank pages about lots of areas of this, in style, in culture of our singing. The Bible actually, despite what anybody tells you, doesn't actually specify styles. Indeed, if the, if the poetic structure of the Psalms tells us anything, is that there is no poetic structure to what we have to, we don't, there's no specific poetic structure that's more holier than others. But the Bible does make certain things specific, as it does in all things. Number one, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we meet together singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. The songs we say should be full of the word of God, our understanding of God, because it affects every part of how we think of God. I hope the songs that we're singing this Sunday in our church are rich in the word of God. And um, secondly, it also says that we sing to one another. So, and, and indeed it says, you know, when you meet together, it's part of, it's part of what it is to be church. We have this picture of heaven of every tribe, tongue and nation singing. And that glorious picture that we, we, are, we are so excited about. And, and, and in a sense, getting together on a Sunday is that. No matter how good uh, the brunch might be in downtown in Metro Washington, it's better being together as God's people singing to one another. It's better than watching it on the laptop or listening to a podcast and finding our own armchair religion. No, we are part of God's family and part of our love for each other is singing to one another. We're encouraging one another. I might not feel like it today. The person in front of me may need it. And we all sing to one another. Thirdly, it says to sing with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in our hearts. I've, I have a lot of friends from the more conservative side of the church who, as soon as I say the word of Christ, they're all kind of like, amen. And then it comes to let us sing with thanksgiving. If I took a picture of your church this Sunday, would the disposition of the people be one of thanksgiving or would it be one of somebody stole my donut and I am somewhat <laughs> upset about life and all that lies therein? Of course, we have to have fear and reverence in what we do. It's extremely important, but there should be an overwhelming joy when we sing to the Lord. So we sing because we're commanded to sing. Secondly, we sing because we are created to sing. God has created each one of us. One of the unique things, Bernstein talks about it as the universal language of music, that each one of us sing in every culture. Uh, we do know, of course, the obvious question is, I, although I'm a musician and I try to look deep and stuff like this, I actually hang out with sports guys most of the time. And so we get together and the question usually comes up, you know, I don't like to sing, I'm more into sport, I'm more into business, and no, it doesn't really do anything for me. My wife loves that kind of thing. I'm not really done really do No. All of us are created to sing. God in his sovereignty decided that some people sing great, some people don't sing so great. My wife, before our fall tour four years ago, said, Keith, we need to talk. And uh, that's usually not a great start. But um, she said to me, we need to, um, we, need to, uh, we need to turn your microphone off during the tour. And I said, but sweetheart, I love to sing. She said, I, that is most of the problem, Keith. It's, it's quite off-putting to most of our band because you make you, you sing and then you stop concentrating and then you come back in again and you're slightly out of tune. Then when the band play reels and jigs, you make this funny kind of yodeling sound with your mouth and it puts everyone off. And so I still sing in our concerts with passion, but 
not with a microphone. God <laughs> ordained that I was not really much of a singer. And uh, indeed, the best way to illustrate it is actually, is actually, uh, when I think, when we think of our girls, Kristen, uh, we were one night we were we, we we teach our girls a hymn every month. We take them to bed at night. We sing a hymn, and uh, and we just and some, sometimes it's, it's sometimes we, it's thoughtful. Sometimes it's we just kind of throw them in bed and play it and turn the lights off and get out of there. But but we were teaching them the hymn Holy Holy Holy, which we're going to sing tonight. And uh, Eliza, our firstborn alpha child, overachiever, wanting to please the Lord, 26 hours a day, uh, decides she wants to sing it perfectly, which she does. Our second child, who's exhausted with Eliza decides she wants to sing it too and uh, sings it kind of a little bit more casually with her eyes rolling but but beautifully and our third child Gracie who always wants to be like the oldest two she says I want to sing a verse of holy 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 so she sings it and she goes holy 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 how I wonder what you are <laughs> up above the world so high like a diamond in the sky holy 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 blessed trinity <laughs> Now, <laughs> the thing about it is, our Lord looks down on all of us singing in delights and our praises. Uh, Zach White, a member of our band, talks about the influence of his father, who loved to sing to the Lord as a child. And it took them to their mid-teens to realize that their dad basically had one note. And, uh, but it didn't matter, because he loved to sing. Friends, dads who don't sing is not a good thing. It is an, an, an appalling witness, and indeed, one of the questions we most get answered, we most get asked, is what churches sing well? And I'd love to tell you that it was, I'd love to tell you that it was a musical. So I'd love to tell you it was our songs. I'd love to tell you it was, you know, there's a formula. But on, the, the, other than people made alive by Christ, the biggest single commonality in churches that sing well is a senior pastor who cares. Is a senior pastor who cares. And I think you'll find that with families too. Families that love singing. The dad loves singing. Dads, we don't have to sing in tune. God has sovereignly made us bad or good or decidedly mediocre singers. But it is a responsibility for all of us. So we sing because we're commanded to sing, created to sing. But most of all, and this is where my Presbyterianism just slightly stretches, because the love of God compels us to sing. In other words, in other words when we think of what the Lord has done, when we think of... Our, we think of our Lord and think, praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who, like we, his praise should sing? Praise him. It's all we can do. The, Amy Carmichael, the Irish, poet, the Irish missionary, said, how can I keep from singing? And so our singing needs to respond to the greatness of God. If you're leading a service on a Sunday, it seems obvious, but, but, but doxology responds to theology, the truths of the Lord. Don't begin our services with jokes and telling everybody, ask them how they were and if they watched the sports game last night. No, tell them of how great our God is. Tell them of the wonder of the hope they have in Christ and then we respond. And so we sing because the love of Christ compels us to sing. Kristen's dad, John Lennox's brother, um, we used to often play this tape of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir as an encouragement to him. He was a church planter, and church planting in Northern Ireland isn't the easiest thing necessarily. And uh, he used to play this video uh, of, uh, of, what was the song? Clean. I'm, yeah, Calvin Hunt. I'm clean, I'm clean, I've been washed in the blood. Someone left in the streets of Brooklyn with a crack cocaine addiction. Useless by this world's standards, and yet wonderfully saved. Singing with tears rolling down his face. I'm clean, I'm clean. I've been washed in the blood. I hope on Sundays that we are celebrating the greatest news. I hope the people who watch us sing on Sunday understand that this is more precious, more dear, more all-encompassing, more intense, more vibrant than 
than sport than anything else in our lives. I really hope so. I, my, my, my conversion's boring. It wouldn't sell any books. But I do, you know, it, it still means so much. We, we, we sing when Satan tempts me to despair uh, and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So we sing because God has commanded us to sing. It is obedience to not sing. It's disobedience like any other form of disobedience. We sing because we are created to sing. However, God has created us. And we sing because most of all, because the love of Christ is the only hope for the world and the most overwhelming news and how can we keep from singing? So very quickly, I have 15 minutes. How does singing then affect our spiritual formations? Let's begin as individuals. Obviously, it goes without saying, um, going back to Luther's illustration, Luther's illustration was based on his studies of the church father, studies of the scriptures. And uh, we sing because it profoundly affects how we think about everything. So we begin with the Bible songbook, always a good place to start. The book, book of the Psalms paints this extraordinary picture of the God of the Bible. Indeed, side note, when we were thinking about doing hymns, uh, J.I. Packer's Knowing God, um, one of, the, one of the days that was a real aha day for me was when we looked at the contents page of that book. You know the wonderful contents that he has at the start of that book? And realized that I didn't have songs for over three quarters of the chapters. How tragic is that? Folks, authentic worship is a phrase that people will use to sell anything. Authentic worship begins with an authentic picture of the God of the Bible. Authentic worship should never be measured by a quiver I get in my liver, by a musical style that my grandparents loved, by being cool and feeling great, or feeling somehow kind of emotionally, this is it. That's how I know it's authentic worship. No. Authentic worship begins with an authentic picture of the God of the Bible. And the Psalms of a God who is holy, who is, who is majestic, who is almighty, who is omnipresent, who is omniscient, who is omnipotent, who cannot abide sin who will one day be our judge and whom each of us will stand before one day and give an account for our lives and how we've used them and yet it's also he's a God who's full of compassion he's a God of peace he's a God who's rich in mercy who's longing to forgive and who delights in our praises I hope the songs we sing in Sunday are presenting a big vast bible-centered picture of the God of the Bible because that is how we understand our faith that was an event uh, a couple of weeks ago with a bunch of Christian leaders. They were slightly more in the senior, probably averaging, averaging in the 50s. And in the middle of it, I just started singing, Beloved, let us love one another. You can sing along if you like. For love is of God, and anyone that loveth is born of God. That's it. And it finishes 1 John 4, 7, and 8. So I said, so how many of you have memorized 1 John since then? Any verses of 1 John? It's extremely important what we sing. It shapes our understanding of the God of the Bible. Secondly, it shapes our emotions. Um, the Psalms are so unblushing in their emotions. We celebrate, we sing, we dance, we shout, we play, we play skillfully. We also meditate. We're silent. We question, we lament, we mourn, we are angry, we doubt, we repent. We acknowledge that he is God and that we are not. 
And for all the millennial generation has claimed to be emotionally much more in touch than their stoic grandparents, actually it is a, it is a, very, it is a very formulated emotional structure. Have somebody under the age of 35 read three psalms in succession, and they probably couldn't do it, they'd be too embarrassed. And so we need to make sure that the songs that we're singing also have an honest reflection of all parts of human emotion, because the gospel does that. It allows us to celebrate and live in awe of the wonder of God, but it forces us to lament our sin. And then it allows us to be thankful and to celebrate. Thirdly, the songs that we sing have to be full of, of the gospel. The early hymns in the New Testament rehearse this gospel story again and again. Indeed, when the liturgy was, re, was refounded by the reformers, the service was supposed to reflect the gospel narrative. And it was, as I said earlier, it was an extremely important thing for me. And the songs we sing should be rich in the gospel. When we wrote the hymn in Christ Alone back in 2001, that was at the peak of what is now known as the Secret Sensitive Movement, uh, we got some pretty, pretty aggressive criticism that, that, that we were doing. You know, they, they had fought to try and get spiritual language out of songs so that everybody could feel equally comfortable in church. And now this bozo's coming along and writing all these words with four-syllable theological words in it. And friends... We need to sing the gospel, first of all, but, but more people have heard the gospel through that song at, at weddings and funerals and commissioning services because our services are not just for us, they're for all of those people around us. The gospel has to be clear for the outsider. Paul, through the New Testament, when he's reasoning in church life, so often reasons it from the outsider. The gospel needs to be thorough and clear in the songs that we sing. And we don't have to always go to the lowest common denominator. No form of art does that. Tolkien didn't do that. Lewis didn't do that. None of the classics did that. And J.K. Rowling certainly did not reduce the mystery and the language of her books to, to somehow appeal to nine-year-old sensibilities. And I believe her mortgage is now paid off. <laughs> Fourthly, and most startlingly, in, uh, when we think about how songs affect how we think, is the subject of the eternal. Um, in Britain, back in the late 90s, which is one of the other things that really compelled us to write, was a friend of ours who, who was at Regent at the time did a study of worship songs. The, the Spring Harvest was kind of Britain's, I don't know, whatever your equivalent is of the, the main conference that all the best new worship songs came out of. And he did a theological study. I don't know if it's one of your courses or what it was, but he did a theological study. And uh, in that study, he looked at song subjects. Now, about 80 plus percent of the great hymns talk about eternity, heaven, hell, the fact that we'll one day be at peace with God, we will one day stand before our judge, we will sing to him forever and ever. That, that is a very common theme. Indeed, it is in the vast majority of the Psalms as well. What percentage of the songs in Spring Harvest 98 talked about eternity? How many actually? Give us give me a number. Out of, out of 182, how many do you think talked about it? Three songs mentioned it. So if anyone in this room has any preconception that to move blindly from singing classic hymns or psalms or a rigorous liturgical service to blindly accepting what is accepted in, the, in our churches and thinks that that is not going to affect the spiritual formation and stability and depth of the next generation, friends, you need to repent, actually. It is that serious. So... That's just four thoughts on, on individuals and how we think. Secondly, how we sing affects our family. My wife will take some questions on this later, and she's much more articulate about, about it. It wouldn't take Einstein to guess. She's a better mother than I am father. Um, 
but what, what we sing uh, profoundly affects our families. You know, I, I love reading a little bit about, this is my adopted country, and I love reading some of the early stories of of the early settlers here. And there's a, there's a wonderful book, I forget the name of it, but they talk about they talk about the New England Puritans and their worship habits. And one of the things was if a man had not um, sung and read the Bible with his children during the week, he didn't get to take the Lord's Supper on a Sunday. And uh, I know mean, it was probably legalistic, I'm sure it was, but my goodness. What a challenge to all of us, because uh, because the songs that we the songs that we fill our children's hearts with are so vitally important. Cecil Francis Alexander is one of my heroes, but she um, was so concerned. She was the wife of the Bishop of Derry, who then became the Primate of all Ireland, and uh, Bishop Alexander. And she, when she came up to the Sunday schools in, in County Derry, which is about about forty five minutes from our home, um, she was so concerned that these children two hundred years ago were singing shallow songs, that she started to write poetry to explain the faith. So she went through the whole Apostles' Creed and called it hymns for children, taking every line and turning it into a hymn. And so she took something like, for example, we believe in one God, maker of heaven and earth. So she took maker of heaven and earth, and she wrote all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful. The Lord God made them all the purple-headed mountain, uh, lyric writers listen because she uses all five senses. The river is running by, the sunset in the morning that brightens up the sky, the cold wind in the winter, the pleasant summer sun, the ripe fruits in the garden. He made them every one. You can almost taste them, just the beauty of the poetry. And with this vision and passion for eight-year-olds, she helped a generation of people understand that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We have dignity. We have value. There's such a thing as beauty. And we're not accidental, random molecules who have happened to land together and we should eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And that's the challenge for all of us and our children. All of them have songs. And we have to decide if the frozen songs are going to be the ones that are the preeminent ones, and it's not funny, or the songs that we sing in our churches. I was with a friend, and it's not funny because I was with one of my buddies that I ate burgers with is a guy called Phil Vischer. He created a thing called Veggie Tales 25 years ago. So he, I was sending him, I was sending him, well, congratulations, you know, and I said, I was, I said, I was a few weeks ago, what are we talking about? Oh yeah, so I said, I said, Chris and I are trying to develop the, 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 kids, the, the kids' hymnal that we write to help children sing. Any, uh, 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 what, what's encouraging you at the minute in children's music? And he said, well, I've just done a survey to try and encourage investors to invest in children's movies. And it was all multiple choice answers. One of them was, one of them was, would you like to have more children's entertainment that taught the Bible? And there was five multiple choice answers. The most common answer ticked was, no, we're happy with Pixar. Incredible, isn't it? Incredible, isn't it? I don't believe anyone has the right to be on a stage on a Sunday leading worship or preaching if they're not, first of all, filling their home with songs of the Lord. It is that important and it is that crucial. I'll let my wife talk about it later. Two more things then. How does it affect our churches? So how do we prioritize our churches on a Sunday and build singing churches? Well, just a few quick thoughts. Number one, it begins with leadership of the church, which means leaders you got to lead. And those around you, you have to honor your leaders. Musicians, we're not always the best followers, but we need to do that. And we need to be talking to our pastor and, and yearning that we sing songs that are deep. Secondly, uh, we need to be choosing good songs. It seems like an obvious thing, but uh, you know, it's good songs sing well. 
You know, have you ever been to a service where they do these, these two like songs that nobody knows and there's the front two rows are dancing like a disco. Everybody else is standing around wondering what to do. Then the third song's like How Great the Ward or Amazing Grace and suddenly everyone's singing and you're going, why didn't they start with this? <laughs> ever had that sort of feeling? <laughs> yeah, begin your services with, with songs that bring the whole family together. Think, we're a family. We're trying to build our family and help us with the privilege of singing together. The goal of singing on a Sunday is God's people all singing together. The, the privilege that it is as a musician is, is, is to help you sing better. That's my privilege. And uh, that is our goal when we sing together, that we do that. So, so begin with a good song. I mean, think, think of it in family. Think about it in this time of year. Think about it at Christmas, you know. The whole family are gathering together. And uh, so how do we start? Well, um, well uh, so what does everyone think of the current political stuff that's going on? Do you begin with that? Is that a good unifier to your wider family circle at Christmas? Of course it's not. You don't begin with that. You wait till the dessert. Somebody comes out with that, then you all start fighting. But the, <laughs> bring our people together. Thirdly, thirdly build, find music teams who, 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 sh who share these goals. Build a music culture around the people in your churches that everyone, the crazy drummer, the egotistical singer, the awkward choir member, all of them want and are excited in a Sunday about our congregation singing well. And we build a culture that way. Make your goal for 2020 and 20 that each Sunday we ask how was our congregation singing finally finally um, our singing doesn't just affect each one of us we are a witness to the world around us we when we sing we are always a witness to the children in our church who are looking on and trying to make sense of a world that is utterly confused to the person who is visiting your church remember we are thinking about our outsiders and our worship services I hope our singing is a witness to them. To the person who's been a Baptist or a Presbyterian in their family since before Moses, but they still don't know the Lord, I hope they see something that is radical and attractive in our singing on a Sunday because I, I believe in the use of music in all areas of church. I'm, I am a hugely excited for music, but it is my genuine conviction that they're in a culture where, where family, where community, where marriage, where all of these things are collapsing and losing their meaning that the witness of God's people singing together about their creator and redeemer is far more radical and attractive and challenging and actually winsome and engaging. So finally, finally, our singing also can fire us to mission around the world. I want to tell you one final, final story. Uh, Frank Houghton was the, was the bishop of the Sichuan area of China back in the 1920s. The, the Red Army had taken over China, China. Persecution was rife, people were struggling. And then the China Inland Mission's desperate goal to bring more missionaries to the field, he called for a prayer meeting around all the countries with all their supporters, and he wrote a hymn called Facing a Task Unfinished. And one of the verses goes, we bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. Ours, the same commission, the same message, ours. But in this song, fired by the same ambition, to thee we yield our power. He got people to sing that song and 204 missionaries went out to China and began that work. And uh, I'm a sort of a dreamer. One of my heroes was Eric Little and that uncompromising life of courage and conviction that he lived. And I often wondered, you know, Scotland's now the least Christian part of Britain. Why did we lose Eric Little? You know, and yet today in China, I think, it's, I think it was three quarters of a million believers around about that time in China. And today the number is what? 80 to 100 million believers in China today. Um, may each of us have conviction to sing about the one hope 
that, that we have in this world. And may we draw many to Christ as we do that. Thank you so much for your time. For that, Keith and Kristen, and Jeff, I wanted to invite you to give a few thoughts in response. Thank you very much. I'd be glad to. I think Keith was hoping that I would demolish the whole thing and tell him he was completely wrong <laughs> and you'd wasted our time. We're Irish. All, Irish. Our, all our wars are happy. You all our are. songs are sad. Yeah. <laughs> Keith, Keith wants to have a big fight here, but I, I, I'm really going to say yes and amen to really the main points that you're making along the way. And I thought maybe I'd just highlight a little bit three things I, I found terrifically important and helpful in, in what, he's, what he's saying. First of all, the idea of singing to God and the Godward orientation of what we do is really significant and singing to one another, which I think is a really important theme in what you're talking about. You emphasize this as congregational singing. We have now done congregational singing. We're a congregation of a kind tonight. And I think that's so important in a performance-oriented culture and in a spectator-oriented culture, that the spectator, if anyone, the audience is, is God himself, and that's an Os Guinness theme for sure, the audience of one that we have, but also to edify one another in what we do. And, and what I find significant, and I'd like to have you say some more about, actually, is the cultural thread which makes us uh, spectators passive, not participants. We watch the experts do their thing at the front, we sit and we watch, and we don't really sing. And often the, the quality of congregational singing isn't very good because the experts on the stage are kind of doing it all and we watch them, right? But you're pushing in the opposite direction of our total engagement, which I think is very, very significant and needs to be underscored and is, and is a great point. Second thing that, that you touched on a number of times that I think is so valuable is the five senses, us as whole persons, us as embodied, the idea that, that we have been made as creatures to sing, all of us, even if we can only pretty much only work with one note. And I love the folks around me in pews present, and I'm thinking of my current congregation, uh, a woman who sings with great, great gusto, completely out of tune. <laughs> and just enormous, and I, I don't dare tell her, you know, that's just totally awful. Because she is thoroughly engaged with what she's doing, which is wonderful. So this theme that you're striking of the whole person, Heart, mind, imagination, voice, embodiment, communally together. No wonder hymns shape us or can shape us so deeply if they engage all of who we are, sort of the whole person. And I think that's an important um, sort of thread to strike because you're working very hard, you two and, and a group with you, to have theology in these hymns and to be very serious about the theology. But what I love is that you're not only serious about the theology and the content, which you've also emphasized a number of times, which is super important, but the transformation of the whole person, engaging the heart, the mind, the imagination, the affections, our emotions, singing the Psalms because there's mourning and grief and lament, every imaginal emotion in them. So I think that's very significant. And the last thing I'd say is, I love your awareness of our context, of our culture. From the very first comments you made, and I'd like to hear you talk some more about this, the entertainment industry is an industry, and you're a part of the Christian music industry. But you, well, you're in it, but not quite of it. So I, want, I actually want to get you to talk about that. But you're very much aware of the, the, the cultural forces that are shaping us. And I think that's very significant. And we in, in churches need to be aware of how those forces that are shaping us are shaping what we do on a Sunday morning and what we don't do on a Sunday morning. 
and what kind of formation actually we offer to people and shape people towards. So I think your awareness of our context, of our culture, of where we're at and of the dynamics of those. I've touched on one which I think is the performance culture part which kind of bothers me a bit as you might tell. But, but there's also the business about just being sort of in, in the world of the music industry but not of it that, that I think you're aware of but I'd like to hear you guys talk more about what that is. I mean you're in Nashville, that's the heart of it but you're trying to do something contra a bit with it and, and to point in some different directions. So anyway, those are, those are three things that struck me as really important out of a, a really wonderful rich feast that you, that you gave us. So thank you. Yep. Well, Keith and Kristen, would you, any thoughts in response to what Jeff just said? I'll do, oh, sure. So the first one is the, is the, is the performance culture question. And again, a, a culture, no culture changes overnight. So I, I, I'm not gonna dare to give you a sound bite that you can go away with, um, you know, put, put the tablet in the, in, the, in the water and take it and it's gone next week. I think it begins with the senior pastors of our churches. No matter what, where you are, I mean, Spurgeon or Lloyd-Jones if you're British, Moody and whoever else here, you know, if you're American, you know, these folks were not passive about what their congregation sang. Indeed, the hymn book thing helps secure denominations or church groups in the songs they sang. Pastors chose the songs. Pastors cared about their congregation singing and that their families would sing it during their week. Both my sets of grandparents had hymn books beside their bed. So it begins actually with the senior pastor and his desire that his congregation will, will grow in a knowledge of God and how much singing great songs helps that. But that the whole congregation is involved. So we should be nervous, you know, so if our congregation is being taught that they're created to sing, that they're commanded, this is a command as much as any moral command is a command or ethical command. So if, if they understand that, they're coming to church prepared for that. And, and there's lots of other little practical things, you know, preparation, for example, is one thing. My grandfather used to be in his, in his pew 20 minutes before church every Sunday to prepare his mind. He had a business, he was a businessman, he was into music and sport, but he had to be in his pew to prepare for to get his mind ready for church, to read the scriptures, to do that. And so, you know, because that doesn't exist in our society, society, because if you're three minutes early for church, you go through the Starbucks drive-through. And so we have to, you know, prepare our congregation for what worship is on a Sunday, whether it's through prayer, reading the scriptures, using music for a few minutes beforehand to do. We, we need to prepare them uh, as well. So it's, so, it's, so it's teaching them what it means, it's preparing them, and it's helping them sing, sing songs. Most of the disaffection is that most of the songs in church just aren't singable. You know, I mean, my local pub in Ireland could sing Amazing Grace 10 times better than most churches I've been to in America. And that's terrible. And it's not because my local pub are good singers when they're Irish, so they like singing, but, but, it's, because, but it's because Amazing Grace is a great tune. It's just a perfect tune. It's a perfect pentatonic melody, you know. A great tune sing well. So, so if you sing bad songs, if you sing bad songs, they get sung badly. You know, can I, can just, I ask more about that? So yeah, in terms of the role of the senior pastor, what about worship leaders yeah. or worship team? Well, the, the, yeah, I, I've never understood why you have to have a worship leader. Do you know what I mean? Or what it, I, I still don't understand what it means anyway. But I mean, we get up to the front and Kristen sings in a microphone and I play piano. And if she's with the kids and I kind of start in the microphone and pull back a little bit because I'm not very good at it. But, but the, the role of the musician is, is I think, is to, is to, it is God's people gathered together singing to their creator and their redeemer. The only role that a music, a music director or a worship leader or an instrumentalist or a sound man or anybody else can have is to help those people sing better. 
So work out how to do that in your context. And if your context is somebody singing in a microphone, that's great. If your context is having a choir, that's great. If your context is just enjoying singing beautifully to the Lord, that's great. Mm. But that's all your role is. Now, I personally think as somebody who's given my life to music, there's no higher calling, there's no higher privilege than to get to help people. You know, me, me getting to play holy, holy, to allow you people to sing, that's the greatest privilege mm. of my life. Mm. So I think understanding their context, their, their responsibility, is really, is really important as well. Is there anything more specific? Is that helpful? Great. What were our questions again? Actually, Chris and I wanted to turn with yeah, to go you. To. Uh, Keith mentioned that you had given a lot of thought to how one cultivates a culture of singing and music within uh, one's family. And in the course of doing a little bit of research uh, before uh, this event, I found out that you had actually selected songs for each of your daughters to be born to so that they basically made their world debut to a personalized soundtrack. So clearly you have given a great deal of thought to this. So for, so, so for families who are trying to think through how can I develop a family culture of, of praise and music, what advice would you give? Oh my goodness, you're making what was totally chaotic sound like a calm procedure and it wasn't at all. I wanted them earlier on, early on, as early as possible, even while they were inside of me, um, to be singing and to be singing songs of the Lord and then to grow up knowing that um, singing was not just something that I did a microphone to perform, but it was part of everyday life. Um, my kids love to sing, they have varying abilities. And um, even some of you were talking about performance, the word performance can be um, a little off-pitting, but actually considering the purpose of what you're doing. Because, you know, I perform to my kids whenever I'm trying to explain something to them. When a pastor gets up to preach, he is performing. When anybody plays an instrument, they're performing. What is the purpose of that performance? And the purpose, I find, is my singing is to try and encourage other people to sing along with me. And um, we realized that uh, even though that we were busy singing, um, we still had to be very intentional about teaching it to our kids. We actually had to uh, draw a line in the sand and say, well, we have to take this seriously and not just expect them to catch it. Um, we were at an event in um, New Jersey at the Wilberforce Private School, and they invited our eldest daughter to come to the front and join the kindergarten class to sing in Christ Alone. And as she was walking out to the front, we realized... I don't think she knows that one. <laughs> I just, and I tell you, I have sung that song a few times. A just lot. A few, maybe. Just a few. Yeah. Nearly every time I get up to sing it, sing that. And I realized I hadn't actually taught her the song. And so that started us. Parental negligence. Yes, I'd it say. was terrible. Yeah. So I thought, well, we need to really teach that. But and that's why we started the, um, the Getty Kids hymnal, because I didn't want her just to have to play me singing all the time in the kitchen, like chewing your own arm. And I just thought it would be good to have kids sing these songs. And so we started this hymn of the month program. Very basic thing, nothing very fancy. We don't invite the band into the girls' bedroom in the evenings to play. It's We just um, play it on the phone or not. And we start in the beginning of the month, we pick a song, and we talk about what it means, and then let the words inspire more questions, which has been really wonderful, and then we um, hum the melody, and then we work it at a line at a time. Some months when we get through one verse and a chorus, we have our favorite. Some months we start again and realize it's a bit too soon to teach a particular song. One of the ones that was we taught our kids the compassion hymn that we wrote. It was, part of it was um, they weren't being very compassionate with each other, and we considered it would be good to teach it. And after the third or fourth night, fourth night um, they weren't catching on. We realized it's actually not a very good song. They thought it was a rubbish song. <laughs> so we, we 
threw that one away and we went, we, we picked something else and it's been a wonderful thing. In our home church, one of the things that we love is that the first um, 10 minutes of the service, all the children are in. You know, we find as we traveled so often, the kids weren't even in singing with their parents and they, we missed something, that multi-generational aspect, your kids seeing, this is something other families doing, your kids learning to grow their voice as part of the church. And I just loved the fact, you know, there might be many Sundays where they've walked in and they have started a song which our kids know and they're singing it with us and that, is, that has been a, a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you mentioned, Keith, that I'd like to invite any of you to comment on was that the Bible commands us, perhaps more than any other command, to sing. But one of the commands that's also repeated throughout the Bible is to remember. You know, to remember the God who brought you out of Israel, to remember his words, to write them on your heart. And of course, there's increasing uh, research, brain research and neuroscience research, that ties music to memory. And so as musicians, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on what it is about music and song that enables us to remember so much more clearly and more deeply than what we watch, see, read, or tweet. Well, essentially, it is part of how we have been designed, mm -hmm. and that our gift of singing is not just a byproduct of speaking, but actually it is part of our makeup, and through it, we remember things in a unique, and I'd say a more enjoyable way as well. And I was, uh, we are, were homeschooling our kids on the road just a couple of weeks ago. I was telling you the story earlier, mm -hmm. and our five-year-old was writing the date on the board. And she was trying to spell the word October. And she stopped for a second and she sang a song that um, she had been learning at school. And suddenly all the letters were in order and then she wrote it on the board. Isn't just another little example of just the unique opportunity we have through singing to teach lots of things and why not harness it completely to teach the great things of the Lord, knowing that these songs, especially if you're teaching a hymn to a child as well, they're so rich, so deep, they say so many things, and they're written in a style that can be sung, they're timeless, they can be sung in many different ways and tend to be sung over long periods of time, and so it's a long-term investment to teach a hymn to a child, even if they only grasp a little of it, they come back the next year, they learn a little bit more, they learn a little bit more, like buying a kid shoes that are a little bit too big before they start school because they're going to grow into them through the year, mm -hmm. to not shy away from teaching them wonderful and um, deep hymns of the Lord and continue to sing them in a way that will keep singing to them even when you're no longer with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an exciting opportunity for any parent, any church ministry leader, any pastor to take seriously, whole family singing together. Thank you, Keith and Kristen. Thank you each, to each of you for coming, and good night. Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's programs and show notes are available at ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift of great conversations.